shame can make us perform. A lot of us perform in life because we're motivated by shame. It's what parents do sometimes to their kids. Ugh, you're being naughty or you're doing something. And our goal is, oh, we're going to shame our kid into behaving appropriately. Um, But shame is the enemy of change. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Hello, and welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Today, I have a fascinating conversation with couples and family therapist who is also a financial therapist, Nate Astle. Before we get into this conversation with Nate, if you can head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, it really would help. I'd appreciate that, and it would mean a lot. So who is Nate? Nate, as I mentioned, is a licensed couples and family therapist who also practices as a financial therapist. He's doing some really interesting work and he focuses on financial conflict, financial trauma, and intimate partner violence. He does also sit on the board for the Financial Therapy Association and is the founder of Relational Money, where he actually trains financial advisors to gain these soft skills that are required to potentially have deeper, more meaningful conversations with clients. During this conversation, we talk about so many different things. Um, First, we talk about how money and, as Nate mentioned, sex as well, can act as a window to dive deeper into more meaningful conversations, both on an individual level and on a couple level. We also talk about financial infidelity, which is a relatively new term, and we dive into what it is, what impacts does it have. Nate also talks about how shame is the enemy of change. We discuss shame, where it comes from, and how it acts as a psychological barrier for change in our financial lives. We then dive into how our socially constructed gender roles impact the way we feel like we should behave with money and really how these constructed roles are just a bunch of nonsense or to quote Nate, they're just baloney. We also talk about how to develop a greater sense of empathy and compassion when trying to deal with ourselves and partners with money. There are some wonderful insights that Nate shares. I really enjoyed this conversation with Nate. During the interview, you can just tell how much he cares about his field, financial therapy. And I encourage everyone to follow Nate and as he works towards his aspirational goals, which he describes. Enjoy this conversation with financial therapist, Nate Astle. Nate, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you and just even reading your bio there. I think you're, you're up to some great things as a financial planner myself. I think those soft skills are so, so important that just were left out in our training. So I appreciate the work you're doing. It's an unfortunate thing that only now are, is it starting to be, um, you know, something that financial planners are trained in regularly. But I'm a huge fan of the, the cliche, you, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So if financial planners have effective ways of showing that care for clients, 
more than just bottom line and selling and all those things. Just being like, hey, you're a human, I'm a human, and I want to help you in the best ways I know how. That's going to make a much bigger impact on your clients. How much, if anything at all, do you think financial planners or other people's desire to like offload a ton of information on people is more about them, like ourselves as a financial planner or whomever, trying to, in a way, manipulate that person to like them so that person feels valued, seen, and heard? Yeah. Yeah. We call it projection. Okay. Right? <laughs> it happens all the time. So my, like you said, my background's in the therapy world, but yeah. I take my personal experiences and you come to me and you want help with something. And I take my personal experiences and I try and make my experiences fit your situation. And it's, it's an unfortunate thing because we get so wrapped up in ourselves that we miss our clients. It's really easy to fall into. All of us do it occasionally. But yeah, if, if planners aren't aware of themselves, aware of their own emotions, aware of their own thoughts and feelings, aware of their own financial traumas, aware of their own stories, then it's really, really easy to project what's happening inside of us onto our client. It's something that you have to be intentional about. And unfortunately, like you said, it's not really part of training. It's not something that is part of the CFE curriculum. We're only just now getting something in the psychology of money. But even that is kind of surface level. There's a whole whole lot of work personally that I think the industry and the profession could benefit from. Yeah. You mentioned the thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and financial planner or whomever else. I feel like the instruction manual on how to become attuned with your thoughts, feelings, and emotions was left out for me at least. <laughs> and we don't really find that manual anywhere. Well, we, we can, we can find it through people like yourselves. But you mentioned our financial stories. I want to I want to start with a story that one of your stories, your financial stories. Let's start with a quad. What what significance does a quad have in your story? I grew up in a like middle middle upper class family. When I was about ten, my dad bought a four wheeler, an ATV vehicle. It's something that he'd always wanted, and I remember you know dreaming about having one one day and having all these fun shared memories with him. When he bought it, though, he did not discuss the purchase with my mom. It caused, understandably, a lot of conflict. The academic term we have for it is financial infidelity, where we make a major financial decision without discussing it with our partner. Because, you know, the, the ATV is like four or $5,000. I remember when I, was, when I was young and growing up and my dad bought this thing, and I was all excited. What a cool new toy. But then I remember seeing my parents fight and... I internalized the message that if, you know, if I'm enjoying this toy, I'm making them fight more. And it became something where this is somehow my fault for wanting this thing, even though I I wasn't part of the decision-making process at all, right? It became a a start of a money script or a money belief that I had that money is this bad thing. Money causes problems. Um, Because a lot of my parents' conflict was around money and money-related topics, so flash forward, you know, a few years and uh, I get married and I hated, hated doing things like looking over the budget or, you know, talking about certain financial topics with my partner because it, it was just this unrecognized piece of me that I didn't want to admit and didn't want to talk about. But it ended up causing some conflict in my own marriage until I started being intentional about 
okay, where am I coming from? Why do I feel this way? You know, my, my emotions, our emotions aren't there for no reason. They're incredibly useful bits of information. If we can learn to recognize what our emotions are telling us, we can make much better decisions about where we want to move forward. So that's kind of part of my story. And it's honestly, as I got into grad school and I be, you know, started doing couples work and doing my own personal work, you know, becoming a therapist, that's when I realized, oh, money is a really, really big deal in my life. Um, and it affects me hugely. And kind of the rest of this history, I got involved with the Financial Therapy Association. And it's been, it's been great ever since. Well, thank you for that. And thanks for sharing uh, your story. And you can see the reflective work that you've done, just the way you talk through the story about the quad and the awareness that you have in terms of the, the impact that the quad experience had. You mentioned with your partner, in uh, the Klontz's, I, I took one of their uh, financial psychology certificates and there's a lot of papers, not a lot, a few papers, uh, Shapiro, who's researched uh, couples and healthy development. And one paper I, I thought was interesting where she talked about how normal and healthy developments from a coupleship occur when there's like a fundamental change from the identity going from a me to a we or us. And so... She talks about that's functioning coupleships, relationships, when the identity can go from an individual to an us as a coupleship. As you mentioned, though, we all have our own money stories that are impacting us, often unconsciously. Since money does touch all aspects of our lives, and not a day really goes by that we're not thinking, saving, frustrated, so many different emotions attached to money, do you feel that couples can move to this developmental stage, Shapiro says, of the us phase without the curiosity to look back at our own money stories and to understand ourselves in order to be there for our spouse. You can't be a we without knowing who I am. Or each partner, in order to fully move towards that collective we identity, we experience, there needs to be work with each partner figuring out where am I coming from? Because as much as we want to be a we, you will always still be an individual. And this is kind of maybe a theoretical difference, but part of what it means to join with someone, a collective partnership identity, collective financial identity, what it means, what being a financial person means in our relationship, um, means I've done some of my own exploration personally, and I can take that and share it with you and then you and I both work on how our individual stories and our individual patterns come up in a relationship. So it's a, it's a both yours, mine, and our story, okay? I am my own person with my own thoughts and feelings and pasts and memories that impact how I am in the world. So are you. And together we create something new, a new systemic dynamic where my stuff mixes your... I think of it like colors. I know it's kind of silly, but... I'm a red and you're a yellow and together we make orange, which is fundamentally different than yellow and red. You can't just jump to that step of, oh, well, we're going to figure this all out as a couple if you're not doing your personal work. I definitely feel like that's that's been shown true in my personal experience, but also in the work that I've done with my clients. Yeah, the, the term we call it is enmeshment is when my identity gets wrapped up in the we and I lose myself. It seems to me that couples could operate as the two individual colors and like coexisting together and at a very transactional level 
if the work, maybe if the the curiosity to examine their stories isn't there, but I, perhaps would you would you say that to blend them to create? Sorry, I forget the color green. Whatever the two of them go together, uh-huh. to to create that mixed color is perhaps when you, like to your point, going in to do the work to understand yourselves so that you can be there to make that mixed color. Right. Being in a relationship with someone, there's inherent vulnerability. There, there's risk. Right. Financial planners love to talk about risk. There is a risk that when I join with someone in a romantic relationship, I expose parts of myself. And I think learning to create relationships where that exposure is safe and valid and accepted and warm, that's what makes, I think, a couple financially strong. It's, it's more than just how they handle money. It's more than the transactions. It's about the emotional vulnerability that comes with sharing financial stories. As you talk about stories and the influence they have, as a guy who is a financial planner, when, when I, my wife and I started getting together and co-mingling our money, I had this story in my head that money was really important. That's why I became a financial planner. And it wasn't until I started to go into my story to, to figure out, like, why do I hold this belief? I, I realized that when I was a kid, I, I held the belief that I was shy, so incredibly strong. And for some reason, I started to perceive hockey players as like they made it. Like, and I thought, wow, they have a lot of money. So money's the thing. I played hockey and I loved hockey. And so I, I attributed money and power together. And it was giving me a little shy kid a voice because people would be like, oh, look, at you're going to business school. You're doing this now. You're doing this. And it was a way to validate that little or have that little shy kid seen. And it wasn't until I started realizing that I started to notice that like, holy smokes, I was being so bad with money in some cases where I would control it. My wife would like try to get her hand in talking about it. I'd be like, no, you're a nurse. I'm a, I'm a financial planner. Like I've got this. I can't say enough about going back to do the work to understand and make sense of those unconscious stories that impact you so that you can be more, I guess, empathetic when you're trying to commingle money in this crazy world that we live in where there's so many demands and there's so many emotions with money. Yeah, I want to say, Sean, that like, one, I appreciate you being vulnerable, you know, and sharing a little bit piece of you because I think it's really easy to, one, it's really hard to find out all those bits of us, right? It takes a lot of work and intentionality to figure, you know, that that little shy kid that I was trying to appease with this money and power, like you were saying. I think it also allows for compassion and context. Like you said, uh, you felt bad about the financial decisions and trying to hold on to that power. I and mean, then it's really easy to write it off. It's like, oh, well, Sean was just being a jerk. But when we understand what Sean was, sorry, <laughs> what you're going through, um, it's like, ah, uh, it's not that Sean was being a jerk to, to be a jerk. It's Sean had this stuff that he hadn't figured out yet. And I think that allows, allows us to be more compassionate and warm to our younger selves or the pieces of us that are manifesting in maybe unlovable ways. Like when we're able to do that, it allows us to be more empathetic towards ourselves as well as our partners. So anyway, I just, I really liked what you shared because I think it's, it's powerful. And every single one of us has a story like that, has an emotional tie to money. I just want to expand off what you're saying. 
money was the gateway for me to actually go on the curiosity journey to find out what emotions I actually held. Like in university, you read in business, you read emotional intelligence book and you're like, oh, I'm emotionally intelligent. I wasn't, but it was interesting that it was money. And like my, my, my real big journey started when I hired a coach to help me grow my business so I can make more money. And, and what happened is we never grew my business like the way I thought, but I went in deep dive and I understand myself more. And he really helped uh, that journey of understanding why am I always aspiring for more? And I realized that I avoided it. Like I distracted myself by signing up for marathons, Ironmans, triathlons, being busy from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. So I didn't have to, I didn't have to go talk to that little shy kid. But you know, when that work started, it's been, it's been enlightening and it's allowed me to actually talk to my wife and see her where she's at in her own stories. So that's why I asked you about like, is it, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's a, a journey that my wife and I are not really understanding ourselves. And it's, it's really made challenging moments in our marriage, but it's also made us deeper than ever in the last 15 or 16 years that we've been together. So I think money's neat that it can act as a gateway. <laughs> I want to move to shame. I mean, even in my story, I felt shameful at times that I was this finance guy. I aspired to be a good financial planner. And then I see all these other people who seem to have it together. And I'm making these financial mistakes that I might perceive them as. And I just would hold a lot of shame there. So how do people work through shame? And is there a link to earlier you talked about financial infidelity? So is there a link between financial infidelity and shame? Financial infidelity is a relatively new topic in research. So I don't have like full data. So I don't want to full like, yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, you know, anecdotally, yes, of course. Financial infidelity is about secrets. At least in my clinical experience, the reason people keep secrets is because they're ashamed of what it looks like in the light. Shame is one of the most powerful and yet powerless things that we have. And I'll tell you what I mean. Shame can make us perform. A lot of us perform in life because we're motivated by shame. It's what parents do sometimes to their kids. Like you're being naughty or you're doing something and our goal is, oh, we're going to shame our kid into behaving appropriately. But shame is the enemy of change. You can't shame yourself into making positive change and growth because they're opposite. Shame is isolative. Shame takes mistakes, which every single one of us make, and we are going to make and because we're human, and it takes guilt and it morphs it into something ugly. Okay, Guilt is very different than shame. Guilt is, I did something bad that goes against my value system or something I wish I didn't do, and I'm going to be accountable for it. I'm going to move forward, and I'm going to make sure that I do that thing less often. Guilt is not a bad thing. Shame, though, takes the, I did something bad to that I am something bad. It's not, I made a poor financial choice. It's, I'm bad with money, right? One is a label. One is an identity piece. The first thing that I work on with, with both couples and individuals is, where's their shame at? Because shame is what's going to keep them stuck. We can talk scripts and we can talk behaviors till we're blue in the face. But if we don't address how they feel about themselves, it's very short-lasting, you know. In order to develop a healthy relationship with ourselves, with our partners, with money itself, we need to minimize shame as much as we can. Say someone's listening and 
well, like you said, it impacts so many of us. If we're curious to be like, okay, how do I start that process of working through the shame? Because I like how you're, you're positioning that is we can have essentially what I'm hearing you say, all the knowledge in the world, but if I don't work through this like psychological belief or whatever this barriers around shame, the knowledge is going to be hard to implement. So how would someone start to recognize, start, I don't know, hugging? I don't know how. Yeah, yeah no, hugging is a great start. So shame thrives in isolation. So one of the first things, and it might be a scary thing, but we need to learn to share our shame. Another kind of cliche that I like is a problem shared is a problem halved. Learning to share the bits of us that we're ashamed of automatically takes a huge, a lot of power away from the shame. If I can name the monster, I can tame it. And so if, if we're able to share with her, whether it's, you know, with a therapist, whether it's with a romantic partner, whether it's with a friend, learn to say, Hey, this is something I struggle with, or this is hard. I think is a huge, huge piece. The other thing that I think helps shame the most is compassion. And it's compassion for self. People that have a lot of shame spend a lot of time beating themselves up. And it might, you know, they might rationalize it away as like, oh, I deserve this. I really screwed up and I did so many things, which I have. But then, you know, as if I had that person in my office and I start asking them, okay, but tell me more about the shame. Where did it come from? When did you first notice it? Well, I feel like I've always had shame. Okay, do, can you think of, you know, tell me about a time in middle school that you felt ashamed. Okay, most of us have experiences in middle school because it's a weird age. We're like, oh, you know, I felt so down when I did this. Okay, great. But anything younger? And most of the time people are able to identify things that happened really, really young where they felt bad about themselves. And it's usually about something kind of stupid, like I, I spilled a drink and my dad yelled at me, right? But they still hold a lot of shame. It's like, okay, you spilled a drink when you were five. And then I ask him, okay, let's take your five-year-old self. I want you to picture little five-year-old you just spilled a drink. What do you wish you would have been told? What can you tell your five-year-old self now? It kind of puts it in context. My behavior now comes from old stuff, stuff that happened when I was a kid when I didn't know any better. How can I really be that responsible for spilling a cup at a five-year-old? Is it a big deal? No, it's not. But I hold on to it so much. My point is, is when we can learn to be compassionate towards our circumstances and why we're in the place we are and why we've made the choices that we made, suddenly it's like, oh, I don't have to beat myself up in order to make change. Because in a weird backwards way, that's what we're thinking. If I just beat myself up, I'm, you know, I'm going to shape up. But that's not how it works. It's when I can be kind to myself and be friendly to myself that... I'm now safe enough to explore change. Oh, that, yeah, that's safe enough, I think, is so important when you're trying to get, learn about yourself and to change. And for people listening who are like, well, financial therapy, money, why are we talking so much about shame? And I know we've talked about financial shame, but how, how does this show up with, like, how do you see this show up with clients that you've worked with or with some of the financial planners? Like, how does this shame... The, manifest into financial dis- financial behaviors later that might become dysfunctional. That might be like, and also maybe think of ones that would be common that we might just be unconsciously aware of. The reason why I say this is because I think 
as a defense mechanism, some people are like, ah, shame. Nope, not me, not me. So I don't want you to pick like a big example because again, they might be like, not me. So if you could talk about how does this manifest into a common unconscious behavior that maybe several of us might either be aware of or unconsciously aware of. An easy one is people who are avoidant with money. So people who it's easier to listen to Sean's podcast rather than actually sit down and do their own budget or sit down and actually meet with a financial planner or do something like that. I would question if there's some avoidant behavior, some kind, I would wonder like, okay, what are you afraid will happen if I do do the thing? You know, if I do look at my budget, if I do sit down with someone, what am I afraid of? And fear is sometimes hard to connect with but fear is a, it's a driving force in, for a lot of us. And we're like, okay, what am I afraid of being seen differently? Am I afraid? It's like, am I afraid to take off the mask and not only for others, but to myself? Am I afraid to actually look down, look at my finances, realize I'm in a bigger hole than I thought? Then I, I can't hide behind my ignorance any longer, right? And so I avoid those things so that I have the benefit of ignorance. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, it does. So that's, that's an example. It's not the example. Yeah. But something that I ask all my couples, not just about financial issues, but when a couple fights about something, let's say it's in-laws or sex or children or whatever it is, I ask them, okay, when your partner does X or your partner does whatever they do above you, what does it say about you or your relationship? And it's a meaning-making question. Like when the dish gets left out and you get really, really angry, what is the internalized message? And so what does it, what does it say about you or your relationship? And they usually say, eventually we get to the point of they don't care about me. That's why they don't push the dishes away, which is a strong message for a dish, right? It's the same thing with our money. I don't want to do X or I do want to do X, you know, whatever it is with my money. What does it say about you or your relationship? I think that can be a healthy start to like, what are the messages I'm actually pulling from sitting down with a planner, doing a budget, investing, whatever, whatever it is that's hard for you to do. How would couples or individuals create that safety feeling enough to actually say what meaning they've been making? Do you know what I mean? Like if you're in a session with you, there might be like when they spend this money or leave the dish out. Oh, I just, you know, it just reminds me of them. You know, but maybe deep down they're like have a real like a real meaning that maybe they don't feel like sharing. So how do couples get to that place of being vulnerable enough to feel safe enough to share this hard information, but that might help them move forward? Yeah. Sometimes, and I'll put that as the sometimes, sometimes you do need a third party. Sometimes something like a therapist is necessary because either person in the couple relationship doesn't have the um, self-soothing skills, right? So if you're in a, a conversation with your partner, you need to talk about something hard. Your first bit of homework is to find some things that help calm you. I'll give you I, wait, just quick examples for listeners. There's a lot of reasons that people say, okay, just take some deep breaths. Actually, Learning to breathe slowly really helps our brain process the stress hormones. So learning to, okay, I'm going to go talk with my partner and we need to make some choices about money, but it almost always leads to a fight. I'm going to just take some breaths. 
I'm gonna remind and I'm gonna remind myself that my emotions don't have to define me and that I can hold on to my emotions while problem solving. The other thing um, that I think is really, really helpful. Well, hold on back up. Another uh, skill, okay, is what I call five, four, three, two, one. And it's using our senses to ground us. It's helping us get out of that anxiety in my mind, just racing to noticing where I'm at. I'm present in the room. So the five, four, three, two, one is just look around. Tell me five things you see in the room. All right, great. Now four colors that you see. Tell me three things you can hear, two things you can smell or taste, one thing you can touch and, ha- and really feel. What's it like to feel your, your armchair? It's smooth uh, or it's bumpy. It's kind of cool when I touch it. It feels thick and dense. I, I know it sounds weird, <laughs> but it's actually a whole lot of research on how mindfulness activities like these can help calm us. And then when I go into a difficult conversation around money, I'm in a much better problem-solving space because I'm not saturated in my emotions. I would encourage both couples to do some self-regulation. And then the second thing is have a structure around the conversation. A structure, I think, is pretty easy to learn and is really helpful. It's called the speaker-listener technique. If you just YouTube search speaker-listener technique, there is a very, very helpful video and explains you know, what is the speaker-listener technique? How can you apply it? And it's basically just having like a talking stick. You know, it's, okay, when I'm holding the talking stick, I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk about my feelings and my experience. I'm not going to, it's not about blaming you. But I feel sad when you purchase that thing because it makes me feel like you don't care about me, right? It's not, you're such a jerk because you did this, you know? It's self-focused and then, my partner practices listening and this active, reflective listening. So you're feeling upset because you feel like I don't care about you when I leave the dishes out. Yeah. And then like, okay, do you feel understood? Great. All right. Now we're going to trade who has the talking stick. So that's very, very basic. Encourage you to like, you know, look up the YouTube video. But having a structure and having regulation skills and if need be a third party, I would say 95% of couples are able to work through it that way. Yeah. Thank you for that. I want to go back to earlier your story with the quad and you had written down, I internalized that it's my fault when your parents were arguing. How, how did that, if at all, show up in your conversations with your spouse when you guys started to talk about money? What self-care or what have you done to learn to, to work through that feeling? Yeah, honestly, it's full transparency. It still comes up. And I think that's important to know is like, yeah, I, I'm a couples therapist, I'm a financial therapist, and I, this is my professional life, and I'm not perfect at it in my personal life. And that's okay. The expectation it can't be the expert has it all figured out, because none of us do, and that's important. Um, so how it shows up in my relationship, um, unfortunately, there are some gender messages, okay? So feeling when I was a kid, it was, it's, some, it's my fault because I'm enjoying this. I'm making them fight more. And it just became uh, the shame, right? Shame was a big part of them. And then as I got married, my wife and I consciously um, and talk about all the time, we do not want it to be an unequal partnership. We want us to both feel responsible for the finances, both responsible for the home, both responsible for 
child rearing, all that kind of stuff. But there's still a message somewhere deep in my psychology that's like, men are supposed to make money. <laughs> and it's baloney. And I know that. And, you know, but when I'm feeling shame about money, there's an added layer of, you know, the man is supposed to be, the man is supposed to have it figured out. Or, and this is, of course, in heterosexual relationships. But like, it's something that I acknowledge as total baloney, but also is, is a big part of how I was raised. That was how my parents did it. They're very traditional in their gender roles. It's not something I want to do, but it is something that comes up. So I need to be extra aware of it because otherwise I'm going to end up avoiding money topics because I feel like I'm doing something wrong and I'm failing as a husband or as a partner. And it's not a compassionate approach. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, in, in a sense, there's this social construct that we've created that, you know, men go out and get their hands dirty and bring home the money and their spouse or partner better take care of that home and raise their kids, I think has caused a lot of conflicting stories and messages. And I appreciate you bringing that up. When you see clients who might have that adapted story and could be on both sides, like the spouse who needs to stay at home and has to take care of the cooking and cleaning. How do you work through that with people who are so subscribed unconsciously to these social constructs that really are, to use your word, baloney? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm trying to rein in profanity. <laughs> That's what, hey, it's called the most hated F word. So <laughs> Sometimes, depending on the relationship I have with clients, so I'm like, okay, so you have a penis. Does that give you any sort of inherent understanding of money? No. <laughs> like, just the same way, like, okay, so you have, does the vagina give you like powerful skills in cooking and cleaning? Of course not. It's all social contract. It's how we were raised, maybe. And we might have gotten really strong messages around those things, but there is no inherent peace and yeah, I'm sorry, my social constructionism views coming out here, but there's no okay. inherent that makes us who we are. A lot of it is the story we were given. It doesn't mean, you know, uh, there are there's a whole lot of research out there on egalitarian marriages, which is where partners share equal responsibility in finances and in child rearing. It's where the idea is we're together and this we share equally. It's not complementary, it's equal. There is a lot of research that they have much better outcomes as far as relationship satisfaction and life satisfaction. But my point is, is no matter what story you were given growing up, we can be compassionate towards that self and we can be intentional about, is it the story that I want for my future? Okay, you two have come in here and you, you came with pretty heavy traditional gender stereotypes None of that is your fault, right? You, you didn't choose how you grew up. You didn't choose the family you're born into. You didn't choose the world that you're born into that socializes us this way. And how is it what you want to perpetuate? Is it the burden you want your kids to have? If not, if you want your kids to have as many options as possible about how they want to live their lives, then it is a responsibility you have to also work on your own stuff. Um, and to try and do something different. You're not going to be perfect at it. Our old, we can call them ghosts, our ghosts of our past lives. Our ghosts come up and we can be compassionate when they are there. But it also can be, I'm going to be intentional about the values I have and want to have in my marriage, 
in my relationship with my children and with myself. I'm not saying this is much easier to say than do, but it is possible. We can change the stories we're given. Yeah, just the last statement, we can change the stories we're given, I think is, is, is powerful in the sense of, at least for me, it makes me think about we have to get into that story to have change as opposed to just like hoping for change or reading an article and being like, why am I not changing? It's really rooted in that story that we're telling ourselves. And it's so fascinating to me. And I, I know you're a financial therapist, so I think you may agree. But whether we're talking about shame, trauma, the, the masculinity role or the femininity role, all of it has a play with money and money influence and like in our um, enhances so many of those, those concepts. And it's just, it's fascinating to me that money just can be a gateway to so many of these psychological barriers that could also, I think on the other end, really turn into like, like when the story gets rescript or rewritten, it actually acts, it can act as a, um, something that really enhances your life. Yes. Oh, love it, Sean. Love it. Oh, when I was in my, my master's program, when we were doing, I was in a class for couples therapy, we were talking about sex therapy and why it's important to ask couples about their sex life, right? It's because their sex life often is a window into their relationship dynamics, Someone doesn't have pleasure or something. What other ways do you feel not prioritized? And you can give them up with lots of different examples. And it's just a, it's a great path to find out more information about the relationship dynamic. And just like you're saying, money is the same thing. Money is the language by which we express so many different parts of ourselves. And when, when things are bad with our personal life, a lot of times it shows up in our money life too. And just like you said, on the opposite end of financial infidelity is financial intimacy. Okay. When we're intentional about these things, when we are working through stuff, when we have the right tools to help us succeed relationally, personally, and financially, it can be such a unifying, positive experience in the relationship, just like sex, right? When things are going well and sex life is good, then it's it's a meaningful part of a lot of couples' relationships. It's the same thing with our money. When we're on the same page and we're, you know, we're talking well with each other and we're emotionally vulnerable and we're warm and compassionate towards each other. And then we start saving up for a house or whatever it is. It can be something that brings us together, which I think is really, really powerful and beautiful. And I think it changes how financial planners could see their jobs, honestly, is you have an opportunity to help someone with more than just, I'm going to take this part of your life, this money part of your life. And it becomes, I am a, in a helping profession and I am here to help and heal just like therapists do, just like nurses do, just like doctors do. I am here to help and heal a very important part of people's lives, which I think is beautiful and is what I hope the field does. Well, you're, you're doing some good work to get the field at that place. But, you know, it makes me think between like you were talking about when there's that intimacy, whether it's around sex or around money, it almost seems like the way you're talking, it's like a way to say to the other person, like, I see you, I get you, you can be you. And it gives them permission to then reciprocate. And there's, I, I feel like maybe a potential good reciprocity that can happen there. And it's so interesting that the gateway can be to your point of vote, whether it's sex or money. And I think that's why it's so important that individuals are doing like work you're doing with financial planners, because 
this was an unintentional consequence of the financial planning system. But I think often we feel shame on people because they'll come into us. When do you want to retire by? Oh, I'm 55, 60, whatever the date is. We pull a needs analysis and like, oh, you're, you're like way off chart. And now we evoke emotion and we're like, you got to start saving this much. Totally disregarding any stories that the two dynamic of the spouses have with each other. And then the one more dominant role, we'll look at the other one and be like, see, And at times I feel like advisors could even be like, yeah, you know what? You really got to start saving more. And I feel like we just like threw gasoline of shame on these people. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Yes. And think about how different it would be if the advisor is like, okay, there's going to be a lot that needs to change in order to get there. Behind every one of these numbers is a story that is equally part of my job to make sure I understand and make sure I validate and, and kind and soft towards that client is going to leave the office feeling much differently about their next few steps that they need to take. If they do need to save more, great. You know, if there's significant behavioral changes that need to happen, okay. They aren't going to do that if they leave your office feeling like shit. And yeah, yes, 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 yes. Love, love, son. Get, I'm getting excited. Get my like foot tapping because I'm oh, outside. <laughs> well, good. You're uh, you're doing the work that's needed, and and it's interesting because I come across people who are financially like they're financially healthy from a monetary perspective, and and to me it's interesting that we can look at the statistics of like oh hey this person worked with a traditional traditional financial planner and it worked. However, I would have to assume that the person who seek to find that person was already a certain personality type. And it just, it, you know, it was good relationship. I just didn't feel like we have a barrier to entry in our industries for so many people who are afraid to come with us because of that shame. So part of that is how do we measure financial health? Mm. If the only questions we're asking is, do they have amount, you know, of dollars in their bank account, then I think we're missing it. I think if we start measuring financial health with that and how do I feel and do I have some self-confidence and am I mentally healthy? And, you know, like if that is what we define financial health as, then I would say there's, you know, that would change how we do what we do as financial planners. What do you believe in your bio? You talked about how your long-term aspirations are to create financial therapy institute. What would that look like and what would be the intended outcomes? My dream is to open a center where we are providing services. So it would look like a financial planner in-house, a therapist like myself in-house, maybe a financial counselor or someone who does more education, for example, in-house. So providing services in a collaborative atmosphere and then also collecting data, um, being able to look at all the different markers, looking at financial markers, looking at therapeutic markers and be like, okay, if we tackle this more holistically, can we affect change and then publish it? Because that is a significant thing that both financial planning and financial therapy needs to step up their game with is we need to expose this to academic rigor. That's kind of my my long-term goal is to start something like that, work with people much smarter than me in, in academic settings and kind of show that, yes, people can change their financial outcomes and people can change their mental health outcomes. And it happens when professionals work together. Mm, Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, we look forward to following your journey on uh, this wonderful aspirational goal that you have. 
my my final question is if you could go to any place in the world that brings you peace could be on a front porch looking at a mountain ocean a lake wherever brings you a sense of peace and you are also at end of life and you're tasked with writing a letter to your descendants whomever is going to come after you about what you learned to live with a healthy relationship with money what would be the theme of that letter i stopped being my own bully it's it's the lines of self-compassion that mistakes don't define you. If you can learn to befriend yourself in a, you know, accountable but accepting way, then the stuff, the numbers, all that, they tend to get worked out. So don't be your own bully. You don't need that in your life. Hmm. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, Nate, it's been a... F- Fantastic conversation. As we come to an end here, where can people find more about you, your work? And if they have any areas they can follow you on social media, what would you suggest? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and on Twitter. My company, again, is just Relational Money. So if you search that, you should be able to find it. And then I teach planners. I have a training course for planners. And I also do therapy and coaching services for individuals and couples with financial issues. So If you go to relationalmoney.com, you should be able to find me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Yep. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I hope you're enjoying these conversations because I am having a lot of fun. I'd like to hear from you. If you have certain guests or topic that you'd like me to explore on the Most Hated F-Word podcast, please send me an email. I'd appreciate hearing from you. Until next week, have yourself a good one.